I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Textually Legal, a podcast about the use of technology and innovation in the legal industry. In today's episode, we're talking about the use of technology and data analysis in compliance matters with attorney Michael Volkoff. Our guest today is Michael Volkoff. He's the managing partner of a boutique law firm specializing in corporate compliance, internal investigation, and white-collar defense. I asked Michael to sit down with me to discuss compliance in general and why the use of technology and data analysis is becoming so important to corporate compliance programs. I like the way Michael describes what compliance is and why it's important. As you will hear, he describes compliance as a program to help keep companies out of trouble, comply with whatever laws or regulations apply to their industry, and to proactively build systems to detect and prevent bad behavior. Michael got his start as an assistant U.S. Attorney General and then moved into legal roles with the House of Representatives and the Senate Judiciary Committee. When he was done with his tour of duty with the government, he went into private practice. He says he was attracted to helping companies with compliance issues because when it's done right, it's good for business and it protects one of the most important assets a business has. That's its reputation. I might add here, too, that Michael has his own podcast and he has a great blog with a bunch of articles about compliance, investigations, white-collar crimes, and stuff like that. If you're a compliance officer or just interested in this subject matter, I highly recommend you check it out. You can find it at volkovlaw.com, but I will also put links to all this stuff on the episode page at tlpodcast.com. So what does compliance have to do with the Legal Technology Podcast? As we'll find out quite a bit. A few years ago, the Department of Justice pulled back the curtain and released the factors it considers when it's deciding to investigate or bring criminal charges against the company. It updated this guidance as recently as June. This DOJ guidance on compliance is helpful because it's a roadmap for companies used to establish compliance programs and cultures. As the guidance document notes, when a prosecutor is figuring out whether to look at a company, he or she takes a look specifically at the adequacy or effectiveness of a corporation's compliance program and the company's remedial efforts to, quote, implement an adequate and effective corporate compliance program or to improve the existing one, unquote. So, again, I ask, what does compliance have to do with legal tech? Well, as the DOJ document points out, when they're trying to figure out whether or not a company has a good compliance program, they take a look to see if the people in charge of compliance have sufficient access to relevant data so they can monitor transactions and they can also monitor and test their compliance policies and controls. Where do you collect this data and what do you use to make sense of it? Technology and software, and that's why we're here today. As Michael explained, the data compliance personnel need to look at is found not only in the existing software companies are using, But there's also specific software out there to monitor company transactions and keep an eye on how well the company's compliance program is going. So you have a podcast called Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Correct. And I noticed that each episode you uh, you have a different introduction song or introductory song, including one episode I noticed, uh, Mr. Roboto by Styx. How do you choose what music you use? Well, in that case, I chose uh, Ms. Roboto because the client was Steel Compliance and uh, their big technology sort of compliance firm. And uh, so I said, you pick it. And they picked it. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so they, yeah, they wanted to do it with that. So I picked different themes for different ones. I used to do all, all of my maybe first 100, I used the Pink Panther theme. <laughs> but then I thought, you know what, let's, it was getting sort of boring after a while. So I just would pick good you know, songs from the past. So why, why the Pink Panther theme? Uh, Cause it was, it wasn't offensive to anybody. You know, everybody, <laughs> everybody listens to it. Everybody likes it, you know, but then if you listen to it a hundred times, you get a little tired of it, to be honest with you. So then I started picking, you know, sometimes, you know, Dylan times there changing things that, and now in my old age, you know, touch of gray by grateful <laughs> dead. 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I got to sort of stick with my, uh, the, the theme of the declining professional. As I, say. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So we're here to talk about compliance. So to get things kicked off, if someone runs into you at a barbecue and you tell them that you're a lawyer and you work on um, compliance matters, how do you explain that to the non-lawyer? Well, it's actually, it, it's a little bit longer conversation. It goes like this. Well, what do you do now? Well, I'm sort of a white collar defense attorney, but I do a lot of compliance work. And you got to immediately say, look, I don't represent bad guys. And uh, what we do is we try to keep companies out of trouble. And how do you do that? Well, we help them imp- implement compliance programs that are basically and using the mantra of to detect and prevent misconduct. And that's what we do. We build systems to keep companies out of trouble. And then people will talk to you a little bit more. Whereas if I said, hey, I was representing a scumbag in a white collar fraud case, they, you know, they don't talk to you that much more. I noticed too, I, I assume that it was a natural progression, but I noticed too, your career in government. It looks like you were an assistant attorney general, but you also looked like you were counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee and then ultimately the House of Representatives. What were you doing there? I started, I worked as a prosecutor, which is by far and away the best job ever for an attorney for 20-some years. Then I uh, went to Capitol Hill and was uh, chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, And then I went over and was chief crime and terrorism counsel at the House Judiciary Committee and loved those jobs because nobody knows how prosecutions work. Nobody knows how defense works on Capitol Hill. So I was able to sort of get some good things done on the Hill. I loved that job for a while. And then I went down and did a political slot at uh, the Justice Department for a period of time for a year or so. And then I went out to private practice. Now, in private practice, uh, what's evolved over time is I I really sort of uh, was very attracted to compliance and the idea of promoting compliance. You know, we always talk about it as like to detect and prevent. And I think there's much more to compliance than that. To me, one of the big issues that I advocate on is build an ethical culture, because if you do so, you're going to make more money in the long run. Uh, I hate to put it in business terms, but compliance is not a cost center. Compliance is a way to protect your reputation. And uh, it's your most valuable asset, most valuable intangible asset, which is your culture and your reputation. So that's sort of my pitch to businesses in the elevator speech to try to get them interested in this. And it's not a great message to walk around and say, hey, look, you guys, if you don't do this, you're going to go to jail. What I rather say is do this so that you uh, make more money. People want to work here. People want to you know, stay with you. They want to be productive. And you're going to make more money in the long run. What was the connection to Capitol Hill? How did you jump from? Oh, I did a detail from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., where I prosecuted murders, gangs, RICO cases. I knew somebody who was on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and they said, you want to come up here and do a detail from the U.S. Attorney's Office? I said, I'd love to. And then uh, just love the job up there. I worked with uh, Senator Orrin Hatch very closely, who's a great guy, very smart very um, supportive of his staff. It was a terrific experience. And how long were you in Washington? Whew. I grew up in, D- in the D.C. area and at age 50 moved out to California and uh, wondered why I spent 50 years on the East Coast, you know, because the weather here is beautiful. 
it's a great place. Uh, you know, the economy is not as thriving here in San Diego as the East Coast. So I always tell young people, stay on the East Coast, go to Chicago uh, in the Midwest, do something in an exciting city. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So we're here to, today, we're going to ultimately talk about tech, using tech to have effective compliance programs. But I want to back up a little bit and kind of set the stage. The Department of Justice put out, or I guess maybe refined, guidance uh, for companies to use to, to make sure they have or some some tips about what the DOJ is looking for in effective compliance program. So I want to get some background there. What is the guidance and, and why does the DOJ put that stuff out? Frankly, Chad, I was glad you reached out to me because this is, I mean, this is perfect for this podcast because what's happened is that the Justice Department has put out extraordinary amounts of guidance with regard to compliance programs. They realize that their greatest ally in every company is compliance and internal audit. And uh, so what they're trying to do here is to provide guidance and establish more standards around how people design and implement compliance programs. Recently, they added and refined the guidance to add uh, what they see going on in the marketplace right now, which is that people are building incredible data systems and they're leveraging technology into their compliance programs at an unprecedented rate. Look, I DOJ sees these presentations, uh, you know, they're going after a company, let's say GM or whatever company, and the company comes in and they'll say, well, look at our compliance program. We were doing a lot of good things. We refined this to make sure that it's never going to happen again. And DOJ sees all these compliance presentations. And what they finally did was they put out guidance to encourage people to implement these systems. And now what they've mandated is they're catching up with sort of the marketplace, but they're mandating access to data for compliance. In other words, a company generates tons and tons of compliance data. And uh, what they want is to make sure that compliance has the access to the data that they need within the company. And they mandated this. And what they're saying is, we want you to get the access to us and we want you to use technology to the full extent that you can because they're realizing how efficient it can be used and how effectively it can be used. We'll get to the, the specific use of the data and your suggestion, like some of the data can be collected and analyzed. But where I'm most familiar with compliance software, it's not even technically compliance software, like we'll help out companies when they're doing uh, internal investigations and we'll either use document review software, e-discovery software, or you know, pattern analysis software. That's where we come in and help. So that's what I'm familiar with. But in doing the research and getting prepared for this this podcast and listening to your podcast too, there's a lot of other types of software that compliance departments can use. And if you could just touch on some high-level categories of that, I think it'd be helpful. Well, there's a lot. And let me try to set the framework as well too, Chad, because I think this is the really exciting part. And I wrote a book on this, you know, one of those ebooks, whatever that lawyers do, you know, 10 years ago to say the revolution's coming and it's going to be compliance and technology. And that's what's happening right now. So what eventually is going to happen is that we're going to see through technology a compliance dashboard real time that allows you to monitor various functions relating to compliance. So you'll have a screen. People will have a screen just like, let's say, you're sitting in the middle of a hospital or in a ward or in a 
wing, and they have screens to monitor patients. In the same way, we're going to have a compliance screen that's going to allow us to monitor uh, various functions and the ability to be proactive. Because that's where the real revolution is, is that technology is going to allow compliance to convert from being a reactive, you know, uh uh-oh, we found something, Uh, let's do an audit, let's do this, and we got to fix it, to be proactive and hopefully to find things earlier in the process, to detect things earlier and to put a stop to it. So what are the kinds of uh, modules that are out there right now? Right now, we have third-party risk management platforms that provide that where you conduct due diligence on your third parties, you do uh, you screen them, you do investigations of them, and then you onboard them, and then you monitor them through these automated platforms. There's a lot of- and You're talking vendors there, yeah. right? The, and all of this is vendors. They're, unless you're at a big financial company and have the resources to program build programs in-house, all of this is really vendors, okay, that I'm talking about because, you know, Citibank will build its own due diligence system. They're not going to go out and buy a vendor solution. They have the money, they have the resources and tech people to do that. But there are tons of, there's tons of demand for, uh, let's say, third-party uh, risk management automated platforms. Going along with that, however, let's talk about managing your hotline. And you can manage your hotline, your call-in service, or you know, employee reporting service. But people are building those out to not just track and monitor hotline calls, but incident management. So that, for example, they're taking the case management systems that you were talking about in terms of looking for patterns and whatnot, and they're starting to expand those platforms to include, if I walk into my boss's office and I say, look, I want to make a complaint about something there, or this guy's stealing money, or this guy's that, that's going to be tracked just like any other uh, employee reporting system through a hotline or email or whatever you, you your company may use uh, or telephone. So that's another one. The other one that, uh, that we see is conflict of interest. And how do you manage conflict of interest? Uh, you have to get attestations from people once a year, let's say, but then conflict of interest concerns can come in and that's managed now off an automated platform. And people buy these modules and if you get it from, and some of the vendors now are starting and slowly, and I think too slowly, are building all of these modules into what I'm talking about is your dashboard. Because they realize that compliance ultimately needs uh, a dashboard and a, a way to bring all of this in together. Investigations and results, like you said, and the, the call center and the HR tracking, the things that you get involved in are all part of this. But there are many other risks that we that companies face, particularly third-party risks when it comes down to it. And then uh, looking at financial risks or financial types of situations where we look for bribery or we look for sanctions violations, things like that, those are going to come into it as well because the financial part will eventually get plugged in as well through whatever ERP type of software a company has. Now, the trick here is that the vendors are slowly building this. The demand they know is there. And uh, I see a bunch of vendors that are owned by private equity. And the problem that what I see is we've got to get more investment. We've got to get more investment in this technology. These 
private equity owners are behind the curve a little bit because you you know their incentive is to build something up uh, and maybe even sell it again to another private entity, private equity investor. And what I'm seeing is that we're, we're not seeing a fast enough move in this. Let's go back to what you brought up in the beginning, DOJ's guidance. I mean, this is fascinating. DOJ is saying, look, we know you can do this out there. We know the data's there. Now, what we want to see you is to develop data analytics to monitor your financial transactions, but also to get all this other data that we're talking about with regard to third parties, with regard to conflict of interest certifications, and your training program. That's the other module that goes into this. People are now putting and monitoring training programs through their dashboard again. So your point about DOJ's guidance is they're trying to leverage, they're trying to push people to go away from paper systems and start to do this stuff all electronically. And I always say to potential clients, I say, look, if you are doing your third-party due diligence through paper and sending emails and then putting it on Microsoft's SharePoint, you are in the, in the Stone Age, my friend, okay? You've got to get past that. And people, I always tell people, automation is going to make you a happier person. I guarantee you'll be a happier person. And that's what I think is going on. It's an absolute exciting time right now in compliance because of that. And you could not have brought a better sort of focus on this through your podcast in the way I'm sure there's a technology revolution going on in many other aspects of legal services, but I see it in particular in compliance. When we come back in just a couple of minutes, Michael explains what kind of data compliance officers should look at and where they can find it. He also gives a couple of tips on where companies can start if they want to overhaul their ethics and compliance programs. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there, too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient, legal services powered by technology. Okay, we'll get back to our talk with Michael Volkoff in just a second. But as I mentioned earlier on the podcast, for every episode of Technically Legal, we have a dedicated episode page with more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talked about. For today's episode with Michael, there's some links to his website and his own podcast. I highly recommend you check it out. Okay, let's get back to our conversation with attorney Michael Volkoff. When we left off, Michael had already explained why technology is becoming more and more important to corporate ethics and compliance programs. That's because to figure out if a compliance program is really working, you got to take a look at data and metrics. But where does that data come from? Well, third-party risk management is one particular area. So, for example... We onboard a third party, and then all of a sudden, the third party in one of the countries we operate gets arrested, uh, or somebody, a principal, gets arrested for bribery. 
Well, we need to know that. And if we're not tracking somehow media sources and data that can come in through our third-party automated software, then we're not going to necessarily get a, an immediate notification of that. And then we have to react to that. That's a simple area of data. The more interesting areas that are going on right now in terms of access is financial and transaction monitoring and programs now that people are putting in to sort of flag uh, anomalies. Let's say it's in the gifts, meals, and entertainment area, and people are out there using that as a way to pay bribes. We set thresholds and set data analytics to monitor these electronic reimbursement requests or approvals, pre-approvals to spend money when you're going to you know, have a, a meeting with a, f- a foreign official who is a high, that's a high risk meeting because if you pay a bribe, then you know, the company's going to be sitting there looking at uh, serious consequences under the FCPA. One of the other areas with regard to access to data, and uh, I don't know if you've seen this in your work with HR, um, I've run into situations where HR will not share data with compliance relating to their investigations. What are the complaints that are coming in? What's going on in the investigation? When you say they won't share this information, why? It's just they aren't, or is there... They, I, I, well, I've run into silo problems, and DOJ did as well. They heard about these problems. And this is why one of the reasons that DOJ put in the access to data requirement was they were tired of hearing about silos within the company. And one area in particular, I'll give you one story, was you know a Fortune 50 company. And if I told you the name, it, it would blow you away. But it took a compliance person over two and a half years to get access to the HR data because the HR people would not share the information because they said, we're the ones who handle HR. We don't see a need to share this with you. And there's privacy interests and whatnot. And the compliance person had to go all the way to the uh, general counsel and the board ultimately to to get an order to the HR person to provide the information. That's ridiculous. And what happened was, you know, the way a company monitors its culture is with, you know, monitoring your HR data is critical because on a hotline, as you know, 80% of the calls that come in are HR related. And I've seen problems where, for example, a company had regular complaints against a supervisor in Brazil for sexual harassment. Nobody did anything about it. And then the culture of that office went downhill because people weren't responding to concerns. The company didn't. And then eventually people became lawless and started to steal and uh, steal money from the company. And the culture of that office went to hell in a handbasket. So at that point, HR's data is really valuable in terms of, and I'm not saying they need to know the names of people. I'm saying to track what are the nature of complaints that are coming in. You know, we want to make sure, for example, there's an expectation that most HR matters or most investigations that are routine are handled within 60 days. And people are tracking that data to see how quickly are we taking the concern in, how quickly are we resolving it. And if you want to have a speak up culture in a company, you've got to show your commitment to listening to concerns, investigating them and responding to them. 
in a timely way. They also added one other point that's going to be an interesting data point. This is DOJ. Uh, DOJ Yeah, DOJ added another interesting point, which is they want to make sure that you can demonstrate consistent discipline across your investigations. And so that has been added to a new factor as to how to uh, monitor your your company's culture because they know that if there's inconsistent discipline, in other words, a senior executive does something and a mid-level manager does something and the mid-level manager is punished more severely than the senior executive, people know that. People know that, employees know that, and you watch your culture go to crap at that moment because of that. And uh, pardon the French, but so my point is that DOJ is saying, we want you to use data and we want it to inform these types of issues, financial controls, employment, you know, HR issues, consistent discipline. And we want you to track these things. And you can't do this in a paper system. It's impossible. That's what I was about to say. If it seems to me with this, this guidance, the DOJ saying we need this data, you need to look at it to make sure that your systems are, are working. You, you have to have tech for this. I think exactly. There's no way around it. That's exactly right. Because, and that's what I tell everybody is you've got to invest in tech and do it now. You're going to be amazed at what you're going to be able to do. Compliance is a frustrating profession because once you finish a task, it's uh, you just go around in a circle and start all over again. You know, with a risk assessment, with this, with that, and then building more controls, tightening your controls, conducting investigations, remediating problems that you discover during investigations. So it's almost as if if you do if you do not have technology, you are going to not be able to implement an effective compliance program. And you're going to get dinged by the Department of Justice, but more importantly, you're not doing the maximum to advance your company's culture and ultimately your profitability. It's interesting because the forward-looking companies, and they're not the high-tech companies, trust me, because they're sort of way behind in compliance, but the forward-looking companies now, and I'll give you a perfect example is Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway has an incredible culture of compliance. The people won't even go, when you work with them, they won't even go close to the line of violating the law. Uh, they just will stay away from it. But nonetheless, they're investing in technology. Nonetheless, they value their intangible asset. And I always uh, point to Berkshire Hathaway as a really well-run company in that sense. And they're investing in it, and they know that they have to invest in it to keep up with what the expectations are. But many forward-looking companies are putting out sustainability reports And as part of their sustainability reports, you'll find this interesting because of the work you do, Chad, is that they're putting out HR investigation data, how many complaints they got, how many, in what categories, and how many people they fired, uh, how many people they disciplined. And the reason they're making this part of sustainability and they publicize it without getting into privacy types situations, you know, no singular information that would identify anybody is they want to prove to to employees, to shareholders, to stakeholders, to everybody, we are definitely making sure that there are no problems in this company because we don't want to have a scandal. 
Look what happens to the reputation. Look what Google suffered with regard to sexual harassment. Look what other people have suffered as a result of this. Look at Uber with its, you know, cowboy culture and ridiculous sexual harassment behaviors. I mean, look, these are people are just not going to put up with it. And so now companies, the forward looking companies are leveraging technology and they're reporting using it. They're publicizing the information that their technology allows them to gather and collect. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. This, this is a good segue to one of the things that I wanted to talk about too. So the Association of Corporate Counsel put out this legal operations maturity model, different disciplines within a legal department, but one of them was compliance. Now, I know the question I'm about to ask is going to be anecdotal, but, but still, I think it'd be, it'd be interesting to know because you're talking about not many companies being forward thinking, but they have three stages of, of a, the maturity of a, of a compliance department for a company. Early stages, basically, there is no compliance program. It's decentralized and no, de- no clear definition of what compliance is. Now, this intermediate stage, a company has centralized some of their compliance function. They're starting to use automation. And then in the advanced stages, there's testing. They do it annually. They've got the tools to monitor and you know, prevent against risk. So anecdotally, of all the companies you, you run into and, and work with, what stage are they generally in, or is it just across the board? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I'll tell you the, the sectors that are behind. Uh, high tech is way behind. Now, why is that? Be- why, why is that? And, you think- and I'll tell you why. It's really interesting, because they all began as startups. And as startups, and then they built you know, their company into Facebook or whatever, and they came in with a mentality of, we don't need legal, we don't need compliance, that costs too much money, just, you know, we'll do legal for form our companies and do certain things and keep us out of trouble. And that mentality continued at a lot of companies for a while. Now, after they've been hammered, you know, 100, 200 times, uh, they finally got the message and are trying to catch up. They're behind. They're definitely behind. The oil and gas industry was beat up through the 90s and early 2000s for bribery and all of those other things, and now have some of the best compliance programs that are out there. Absolutely forward thinking. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's, well, I say they came by it dishonestly. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, but on the other hand, they're doing, the other industry is healthcare and pharmaceuticals and medical devices. They have been hammered so many times. Uh, they have the OIG at HHS that goes after them as well. They're getting better, but they still have work to do. We still occasionally see companies that are in trouble. But, you know, the financial services area is a really interesting area because they, you know, they're out there touting fintech and all these new fangled things. But then when you look at Wells Fargo, and what happened there, I mean, it's a just complete disaster. I mean, they are the epitome of a corporate culture of dishonesty and misconduct. And um, so it, it really depends. What I generally see is if when you have a forward-thinking CEO and leadership team that understands this, like at Berkshire Hathaway, like Warren Buffett, that will permeate the culture of the company. Look for the CEOs, look for the leadership team, and that if they get it, they're going to make sure that uh, something happens here. 
DOJ has done a ton, obviously, through their enforcement systems and the mandates that they've imposed on people. And people don't want to go through that. There's, uh, I had one board member tell me he would rather get a root canal without Novocaine uh, then go through another DOJ investigation. He said it was one of the worst experiences of his life. So let's talk about that. This is a question that I ask everybody that comes on the show because I want to, we can talk about tech and theory and efficiency and all this stuff, but you know, you got, it's got to start somewhere. So I always ask my guests, where can a company start? They've made a decision. They've got a forward thinking CEO. They made a decision. They're going to get in front of this. They're going to be proactive. They're going to start getting organized in their compliance function, but where do they start? What's the, 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 mo- maybe the most imperative or the easiest or the, just to get the ball rolling? Well, uh, obviously it's people, it's the message, what your risk profile is. But then in terms of getting technology, to me, you start with working with HR and the HR generated data uh, that comes in and you want to get access to that. And when you and say HR generated data, what are you talking about there? investigations, employee concerns, exit interview programs, you know, from HR, where you try to talk to people after they leave the company and say, what do you really think is going on here? Uh, and the reason why I, I, I start working with HR, and I always talk about the three amigos or three amigas, uh, who should be compliance, HR, and internal audit. Internal audit is your friend in compliance because you share an interest uh, in terms of, you know, independence and trying to find out what's going on in the company. So the best way to leverage your resources as a compliance person is to establish a relationship among the three amigas. And then as you do that, and as you start to build out a compliance program, we're going to use technology. That's where I want people to start is Make some good choices first on what kind of data you're going to get and how you're going to track it. Now, it may start with HR in terms of people are updating their hotline uh, services and programs or they're moving around from one vendor to another these days. Uh, I see a lot of that. But, you know, I I was in a hospital doing a risk assessment for this children's hospital. And you know what their hotline system was? You call and leave a message on a voicemail. Okay. And I'm sitting there going, you can't even have an anonymous recording. You can't have an anonymous report. I said, how can you guys, I mean, come on, let's wake up here. So there are lots of ways uh, to get started, but you, you know, compliance depends upon its relationship with other people. And then we go to finance uh, after we do this, because ultimately if you're a global company, your biggest risk is, let's say, bribery, overseas bribery, FCPA cases. And the way that's going to happen is people got to steal money from the company and use it for improper purposes, you know. And so you need, your, you need to get involved in your controls. And there's certain compliance controls and there's certain finance controls that you've got to learn about. That's kind of the way to do it. But I always start with the HR data and then we move uh, out from there. But we are going to generate third-party risk management data. Usually compliance is responsible for third-party risk management. And there are lots of ideas I have in that area. And your platform will generate lots of data for you that you can uh, track, uh, and particularly if there's uh, notifications that come in, you know, real-time monitoring and uh, learning about that. One piece of advice in this whole process is don't try to build, you know, an entire data system 
uh, you know, from scratch starting the first day, you've got to realize it's going to take time to do this. It'll take a few years to build a complete sort of data model. But you start by taking certain functions and collecting that data and using that data and then build from there as you build out. Because if you try to do too much too soon, you'll lose uh, the support and buy-in from the business and you'll lose probably support from senior management. That's great advice. That's great advice. Michael, thanks for your time. Um, I will point out, and on our episode page, I will put links to it. You have a great website and the podcast I did mention earlier, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. I'll put links to all that stuff on the episode page. But if people want to reach out and get a hold of you, how do they find you? mvolkoff uh, at volkofflaw.com, or you can contact us through our website, uh, Volkoff Law, as well. And uh, my phone number is 240 five zero five one nine nine two but it's been great chad i i I wish you all the luck with this this is a fantastic uh podcast i love the message behind it and uh i you know we'd love to support you in any way we can appreciate it thanks for your time today likewise 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 That's it for today's episode. As always, we appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Google, Spotify, etc., etc. When you're there, if you like us enough, we hope you'll give us a favorable review. If you want to find me, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmain at precipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at precipient.co. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.